0: up, everybody.
1: Welcome back to Mile Higher Podcast, episode 235. And today is our first day of recording in the new year. There was an episode that we recorded back in 2022, so long ago, and that has gone up for you guys. But this is our first one of the year actually sitting here. We've had a little break to refresh. We're feeling good. And yeah, today's case is super super interesting it's frustrating
0: it's chilling honestly because mm-hmm. it's one of those where the individual literally vanishes yeah. in a seemingly thin air and there's really there's some clues as to what may have happened to him but yeah. there's also some other scenarios that are honestly scary to think about including some predator monks On this college campus, which we'll get into, it's just, it's wild. There's so many different possibilities with this. Mm -hmm. There's large bodies of water around the campus and he was, he's at a party and then just gone.
1: Yeah, he truly vanished and yeah, it really could go so many different directions. I mean, there's several possibilities here. We're going to be talking about the disappearance of Joshua Gimon. But before we dive into the case, we did want to take a second and just thank you all for participating in our campaign for National Center for Missing and Exploited Children over the past year. And, you know, in November, we started an initiative to start matching your donations and a ton of really generous donations had come through, like some of the numbers that people were very, very giving and it really blew us away. And so, yeah, we ended up matching you guys for fifty thousand dollars and that brought our total, you know, we got I think like forty seven, forty-nine yeah, was, from close individuals. Yeah. And then obviously other campaigns that we ran throughout the year, the merch that we always have running where we donate one hundred percent. That's always linked below. And I'm looking at our total now. I mean, two days ago it was one fifty-nine, it's now one sixty-five. So we're already starting this year off with a bang. So just wanted to thank you guys. Um, I know that NECMEC is so grateful, so blown away by your generosity. And yeah, we're excited to see what we do in the new year. So that campaign is ongoing. We will always have it linked below. And you guys can participate in several different ways, like I said. And we'll have all the information about that below or in the show notes as well.
0: Thank you to everybody making the last merch collection. A uh, huge success. I think there is some a few items still left in yes. a few sizes. We're almost out, which is awesome. Yeah, this was from our our winter drop, and um, so yeah, if you want something, I think there's a few sizes left of a few items. Get it before it's gone, because we are not restocking really any merch moving forward. We're doing all limited drops. So if you want something, go and get it. And if it's gone, I'm sorry, you'll have to wait to see what is coming next. So we're we're gonna try to really get some new stuff coming out. Mm-hmm. Hopefully, at least once a quarter this year. Uh, which we're pretty excited about. So thank you to those that have supported us by buying merch. But there is a way to support the show without spending a single dime, and that is by just going over to Spotify. Hit that follow button for mile higher, as well as subscribing on YouTube and Apple Podcasts. That does really, really help us out, Mm -hmm. along with ratings, reviews, good or bad, that all helps support the show and helps its growth. So,
1: Yes, even if YouTube is your preferred... You know, method to watch or listen to the show. If you just follow us on Spotify or Apple Podcasts, it makes a big difference for us. Just that's kind of the way the podcasting industry works. YouTube isn't super factored into everything, so yeah, we would really appreciate. Which it. you can
0: watch the video yeah. version of the show on Spotify, mm-hmm. uh, which is really cool. So I you- actually
1: prefer to watch podcasts on Spotify. it's, yeah, it's really cool. Better, in my opinion.
0: <laughs> I know we're big. Uh, big Spotify fans here. Yeah. But this episode of the podcast is brought to you by Babel, Pretty Litter, Grammarly, and Thrive Market. But I am ready to jump into this case because there yes. is a lot of ground to cover. But there let's is. start at the very beginning and let's just talk about who Joshua Guimon.
1: So Joshua, or Josh Cheney Guimon was born on June eighteenth, nineteen 1982 in Redwood Falls, Minnesota, to his parents Brian and Lisa Guimon. Josh was his parents' only child and really the center of their universe. And Josh and his family moved to Maple Lake, Minnesota, when he was four years old. That's where he grew up. And he had always been a very bright kid. He was very inquisitive and curious when he was growing up. And from a young age, he had an interest in politics. And some of his memories from childhood included voting in a mock presidential election, writing a letter to George W. Bush. And throughout elementary school, his heroes were all political figures like Thomas Jefferson and William Howard Taft. One of his biggest heroes was his godmother. She had actually served in the Minnesota State House of Representatives for five years. And one day, he hoped to follow in her footsteps. He was very ambitious, very driven, and everyone knew him for his confident and intellectual personality. He was also very well-rounded. He was involved in a variety of different activities. He was part of the Gifted and Talented program at Maple Lake Elementary, and he was also a very talented member of the school band and community jazz band. He played the baritone, the trombone, the tuba, and the euphonium. I've never even heard of that. What's a euphonium?
0: That's a good question. (laughs) I think it's another, it's obviously another brass instrument, I think, but I could be wrong. Yeah, it is. It's a medium sized R3 valve. I've um, seen that thing before. (laughs) Tenor voiced brass instrument. I guess there's a lot of crossover between the different brass instruments. So it makes sense why he was able to, I mean, baritone to trombone to tuba. Mm -hmm. They all have the valves,
1: all the bones. (laughs) Anyway, (laughs) bad joke. Um, On this side, though, Josh was also a sharp hunter and Fisher. He loved being outside.
0: Yeah, he's in Minnesota, man. Mm -hmm. There's like a thousand gazillion lakes in Minnesota. A thousand gazillion. tons of fishing, yes. That's
1: right. And at Maple Lake High School, Josh played football and baseball. Unfortunately, at one point, a shoulder injury stopped him from playing sports, but Josh found a way to stay involved became the play-by-play announcer for the baseball games. In his sophomore year, Josh started dating his longtime girlfriend, Katie Benson. And he and Katie had actually grown up together, and Josh had a crush on her since grade school. The two of them made a great team. And while most people only saw the more studious side of Josh, Katie knew him as a very funny and fun-loving guy. But again, everyone that grew up with Josh knew that he was destined to do great things. His classmates actually voted him as most likely to succeed, and he was elected as the senior class president. He'd previously served for four years as a student board vice president. And Josh did have some big plans for his future. He wanted to become a lawyer, but that would just be a stepping stone for his career path. That's because he had his sights set on the Oval Office. As soon as he turned 35, his plan was he was going to run for the United States presidency. And before that, he wanted to serve in the Minnesota House of Representatives. But of course, Josh had to go to undergraduate school first. So after he graduated high school in 2000, he committed to St. John University in Collegeville, Minnesota. St. John's is an all-men's Benedictine college. They have an all women's sister school nearby called the College of St. Benedict, where his girlfriend Katie committed to. So they got to attend school together. And the schools were separate, but they made a joint college, so there were some co-ed classes, and that allowed Josh and Katie to take classes together and continue their relationship. Josh was a political science major, which obviously is a natural fit for his presidential ambitions, and he became a member of the college's Republican organization. He joined the mock trial team his freshman year, and that's where he met Nick Hajjukovich, who was a student a year ahead of him. Nick very quickly got the sense that Josh was someone that he could trust, and the two of them became close friends since they had a lot in common. And at the time of these events, Josh was almost halfway through his junior year of college, and he was 20 years old. He and Nick moved in together, and by this point, Nick was one of Josh's best friends. They both lived in the St. Mauer House, which is a dorm at the center of St. John's campus, and these were multi-story apartment-style dorms. Each of these dorms had five students living in each unit. College had been going great for Josh up until this point. Naturally, there had been some hiccups along the way, but for the most part, everything seemed fine. Toward the end of 2002, Josh and his girlfriend Katie ended up breaking up after four and a half years of dating. They still remained close friends though, and they continued to hang out and talk frequently. Mock trial was still going well, and the team was performing well at their competitions. And the last time that Josh's dad actually saw his son was at one of these competitions. It was around the beginning of November two
0: thousand two. Did you ever do mock trial?
1: No, but it sounds fun.
0: I remember doing it in high school. I think it was for like a civics class. Maybe we did it. Actually, I mean, it yes, was, I totally did one. I just I, forgot I like about it. A lot it. of been a long you, time. It was like a field trip situation. We went to like a little courtroom. And stuff. Oh, that's cool. Yeah, yeah we did
1: that too. Yeah, it's for, really for a law fun. class. I did. I totally forgot about that. Yeah, we took a bus to the courthouse.
0: Do You remember what you did in the mock trial?
1: No. I feel like I had a very minimal role it sucks (laughs) because now I would be so interested in that, but I didn't take that class seriously enough.
0: (laughs) I think I was like, a—I was definitely on the defense team, but I can't, I can't remember what I did again Mm. in high school. You just, if you're not really interested in the subject, you kind of just like glaze through it. So
1: I was dating you at the time. So I was more, well, I think this was like my
0: sophomore year. So this was before I started dating you when I did mine. But yeah, it's, it's definitely, I think it's cool whenever you can do things in high school that you know give you a glimpse into what Mm -hmm. that career might actually be the real life exposure yeah there's only a few few different careers they get to do that but i thought that was really fun
1: Mm -hmm. so being a supportive dad brian had gone down to watch josh and the team compete at the nearby McAllister college josh had won multiple awards for his work and nothing seemed to be out of the ordinary when him and his dad talked so nothing could have prepared brian for the events that took place about a week later
0: which this leads us to saturday november 9 2002 which started off being a pretty regular day at first josh and nick went out to brunch where they got a text from katie she had invited them to hang out with her and her roommates at their place and again at this point josh and katie were broken up but they were still good friends on good terms nick was actually down to go to katie's place as well since they were all friends But Josh actually had another invitation that night. A different group of friends had actually invited him to hang out and play poker in a different dorm. And the dorm belonged to one of Josh's friends, a fellow student named Nate. So Josh decided that he was gonna go to that other party and Nick was gonna go on to Katie's. So they actually split up after dinner. Josh was with their friend Alex and around this time, Josh called out to Nick that he was leaving. And with that, he was off. And that was the last time that Nick ever saw him. It would be a relatively laid back dorm party in the Meton Court dorm on the St. John's campus, and it was only about a three to five minute walk from Josh's dorm at St. House to 75 Meton Court. So just for some context, St. John's is a pretty small school. The student body was only made up of about 2,000 students. So as you can imagine, the actual area of the campus was pretty small as well, and all the buildings were a relative short distance from each other. Again, St. Mauer House was in the center part of campus, but Metten Court was on the northern border of campus. The two buildings were separated by Stumpf Lake, a lake that stretched through the campus. So basically, you couldn't go straight from St. Mauer to Metten. You had to go sort of around the lake, which this is an important note to keep in mind later on.
2: And just going off of that, even though, like Josh said, the college itself isn't that big, or the campus either, it's surrounded by a ton of wilderness a lot of like forest area, tons of bodies of water. So, you know, there's a lot going on outside of this campus.
0: Yeah, there's a lot of nature. And I think they said the university owns like a couple yeah. hundred acres mm-hmm. um, that the actual campus sits on. But the where the students are is fairly small. So, I mean, we're talking, you could probably, I mean, you can walk across campus in what, five, ten minutes maybe or so, yeah. maybe a little bit more. You could drive and probably a little bit less than that. But Josh's key card records show that he last accessed his room at 11.06 p.m., and investigators think that this was Josh going back to grab a few more beers for the party. This is the last time that Josh's key card was used, and he and his friends arrived at the party around 11.30 p.m. The party was apparently small with only about 10 to 15 people there. It was a pretty normal night. Everyone was relaxing, talking, and drinking some beers. Josh joined a group of people at a card table playing poker, and the party continued. But not everybody at the party knew Josh. Some of the students were acquaintances of his and others he had just met that night. But everyone that saw him at the party said that Josh was in a good mood. Again, Josh was really confident and a sociable guy, so he had no trouble getting along with people that he had just met. But at one point, sometime before 12 a.m., so midnight, people started to notice that Josh wasn't there anymore. A group of people said that they saw someone get up and leave around this time, but they couldn't be sure that it was actually Josh. They figured he'd gone to the bathroom, but when he didn't return 15 minutes later, they figured, you know, maybe just got tired and decided to go home. The bathroom and the front door were down the same hallway. So if somebody were going to the bathroom, they could just as well leave out the front door without really anybody noticing. So that's what made it hard about knowing if Josh actually went to the bathroom or he left the apartment. But what's interesting is that it wasn't like Josh to just get up and leave without saying goodbye or telling someone where he was going. But either way around midnight josh was gone and remember josh had showed up to the party at 11:30, so this is just after midnight and he would have only been there for about half an hour josh hadn't told anyone he was leaving or that he had other plans for the night he was just there one minute and gone the next and nobody knew where he went he basically just vanished and he hasn't been seen since he was last seen wearing a gray saint john's hoodie blue jeans and white nike sneakers and in that cold weather, his outfit was definitely not appropriate for anything longer than just a short walk back to his place. Nick got home from Katie's that night around two a.m., and when he got back, he noticed that Josh wasn't in his room. Nick didn't really think anything of it, and he figured, you know, Josh was still out for the night. But when the sun came up the next morning and Josh still wasn't there, Nick got kind of a weird feeling. He logged on to AIM, which, for those that don't know, is AOL Instant <laughs> Messenger. But like a lot of people won't know what AIM is.
2: Dude, I used to love AIM.
0: Oh, didn't we all? Oh, yeah. It's, it's sometimes I'm like, god, my I'm going to have to like show my daughter what AOL is because She's
2: gonna be like Everybody
0: takes so the internet for granted these days. Like uh, dial-up internet, at AOL was like a whole uh, different thing.
1: I used to think it was actually calling someone.
0: Well, it's dialing the phone line. Do you remember I, what the your dialing name is was? like? That's what it is. It's dial-up. Oh. It's dialing up oh, the number to the sense. internet. <laughs>
1: What was your screen name?
0: Uh my screen name my very first was Fender 5927. Nice. And Fender for Fender guitars. Mm-hmm. 5927 was my little middle my first girlfriend's so creepy last four of her phone number. <laughs> so creepy.
1: 5927
0: <laughs> was the last four of hers. Damn. Yep.
1: Mm-hmm. My first one was Ducky Bubbles 422
2: <laughs> and then I had Kendi Wendy 93. Oh. What about you? Mine was Jelly Girl 2004. Hell yeah. Always, baby. You Jelly had that Girl. email for so long. <laughs> no. <laughs> yeah, not anymore. But yeah, Jelly Girl 2004. That and was my life. Hit her up. <laughs> so it's almost
0: like, it's it's kind of like the very, the AOL Messenger is kind of like what Skype or Slack or like a lot of these other apps that we WhatsApp. have now WhatsApp, things like that where Jinx. you log into it and then you'd have all your friends and, mm-hmm. you know, it'd be all their little their usernames and stuff and you can yeah. see if they're online and stuff. You could start like chatting with them. Yep. But yeah, what a different time it was. Oh yeah. So Nick gets on AIM and he notices that Josh's account had been idle for over twelve hours, which is a little a little odd to Nick. At this point, Nick had no idea where Josh could have gone. He ended up getting in touch with Greg and Alex, which were two friends who had been with Josh the night before. But even they didn't know where he'd gone either. Nobody had seen him. Nick figured that Josh would show up to their mock trial meeting that day because, again, Josh was very serious about his schooling, his career, and he would never miss a meeting. But when mock trial meeting time came around in the afternoon, Josh was a no-call, no-show. And by this point, Nick became worried. This was completely out of character for him. So he ended up calling up Katie to see if she knew where he went. And Katie remembers getting that call around two or three in the afternoon. The news that Josh had missed a meeting was very alarming. She knew that something must have happened to him since he never would have just up and left. So now the alarm bells were really starting to ring. It was enough for Josh's friends to say something to people at school, and by 10.30 p.m. on that Sunday the 10th, the phone rang at Josh's parents' house. And when his mother Lisa picked up the phone, she heard St. John's Dean of Students on the other line. And this has gotta be the absolute worst message you can receive as a parent.
1: I can't imagine.
0: And this was when the Dean of Students told Lisa that she needed to call the police and report her son Josh missing. He hadn't been in contact with any of his friends since the night before and obviously this just sent Lisa into a complete panic and she knew immediately that something was very wrong. At 1142 Lisa called the police and reported Josh missing. Officers from the Stearns County Sheriff's Department immediately drove out to St. Mauer House and did a walk through search of his room obviously they were looking to see if there's any clues there about where josh had gone but they found nothing there was no notes you know like a suicide note or something and there was no signs of a struggle and no indication that he had packed up his things and just up and left in fact when they got in there his tv was still on they also noticed that items like his glasses contacts case and wallet were still in the room which when you find those things that's very concerning because somebody who wears contacts you know they're going to bring those with them if you're going to up and leave you're likely going to bring your wallet with you i mean can't really do much without an id and cards so all those things are in his dorm and i think you know that kind of escalates things a little bit but at the same time from the police's perspective there's nothing to suggest that foul play has happened right just because he's not there and there's all these items there maybe he he was out late ended up spending the night at somebody else's house you know the right. warm our place and he just wasn't back yet so it's not necessarily grounds to like set up a crime scene mm-hmm. here because there's just no evidence that a crime has occurred but it's one of those things with all missing persons cases where in like hindsight you're like maybe they should have treated it more of like a crime scene maybe they should have taking it to the next level and you know look for fingerprints or you know dna sample Mm -hmm. things like that but in in the moment how are you supposed to know that you you know especially if you're just you're you got to think that you're talking about a patrol officer most likely who's showing up to the dorm you know welfare Mm -hmm. check type of thing go go take a look at the room it's not necessarily like the first thing that they're thinking And, and it's a college too right kids are out of their dorms for days at a time and totally. and then come back randomly. I mean, that's just how college is. His keys were still in the room too and his car was parked in his normal parking spot. Since there were no contacts inside the contacts case though, this indicated to police that he just hadn't come home that night. But the police kind of assumed that everything was fine. They figured Josh, again, like I had just said, spent the night somewhere else and he'd be back soon. After all, he was an adult and college kids are college kids and do college things. <laughs> So, you know, a lot of people have spontaneous plans that develop, um, especially when you're out late. But still, Josh's friends and family knew because he didn't show up to mock trial meeting that something was very, very wrong.
1: So the first night of the investigation, a tracking dog picked up Josh's scent at Metten Court, and the dog tracked his scent down a pathway and a road leading towards St. Mauer House. But the scent went cold on the bridge leading to his dorm. But there were two students who might have seen Josh between 12 and 12.30 a.m. on the night of his disappearance. That night, they were walking towards Metten Court on the footbridge near Stump Lake where a young male passed them. He was walking the opposite direction towards St. Mauer House and the man was seen wearing blue jeans and a hoodie. The description of the man that they gave investigators definitely matched Josh's appearance. The two students said that when they looked behind them a second time, the man was gone. The man was alone, and they hadn't seen any other people or cars nearby. And again, Josh left the party at Metten Court around this time. So this was very likely Josh. Two days after his disappearance, investigators on horseback searched the whole campus for Josh. So just for some context, St. John's has a lot of property. Not only do they have a college, but they also have a prep school and an abbey, which is a building occupied by a community of monks or nuns and a host of other buildings. They also had the College of St. Benedict's campus and their schools in the neighboring town of St. Joseph. It's a big community with a lot of staff and influence. The area around the campus was pretty wooded and hilly, and there were multiple lakes in the area as well. That meant that investigators had a lot of ground to cover in their search through dense terrain. So the next day, investigators allowed the public to join the search. Josh's family and friends, as well as many community members, formed a search party and tried their hardest to find Josh, but unfortunately, he did not turn up. Search dogs had tracked Josh's scent to the end of the footbridge near Stump Lake, and investigators suspected that he may have accidentally fell into the lake and drowned while he was walking home. So of course, to investigate, the lake's water level was lowered and it was dragged or dredged. And basically, this is a process where a giant net is run through the sediment at the bottom of the lake and then lifted up above the water. So this would lift up any objects that are in the lake below the water's surface. Divers also searched the lake and they used sonar technology as well, but none of these thorough searches turned up anything. Investigators believe that due to the near-freezing temperatures, Josh's body may not have been able to surface until the water warmed up. However, Josh's dad was very upset that the Sheriff's Department was spending all their time focusing on the lake theory. Again, they initially believed that Josh was just drunk and accidentally drowned after a fall. But Josh's dad had to beg them to investigate other possibilities.
0: I was just going to comment on... the the, you know thinking that he's in the lake i feel like if you know the first theory is that he was drinking which it didn't sound like they were having like hardcore drinking going on it sounded like some a few beers at a poker game so that Mm -hmm. to me i mean to get hammered drunk to the point that you would stumble into a lake and, and drown i mean that's a lot of beers and he was again at this party for 30 minutes before he left, that doesn't really make a lot also, of sense. Also, if that were to happen, they were out there looking very, very quickly after he would have potentially drowned or died in this lake. So, most likely his body would be floating in the lake and they would have mm-hmm. found him if that were the case. Yeah. I mean, over time, you know, your body ends up filling with water and you sink, but for a good while, he would have been floating. So, I feel like if that theory were true, they would have found him.
1: So by the time springtime did come around, Josh's body still had not surfaced in any of the nearby lakes. Stump Lake, as well as the nearby Gemini Lake and Sagatagan Lakes, were all searched extensively, but again, nothing was found. So all of these lakes were ruled out. And also, just to mention, Josh didn't have a cell phone. He only used calling cards. So there were no text records, no call history with caller ID or phone pings to go off of in this case. So at this point, the police start thinking that maybe Josh was really met with foul play. So they had to look at other areas other than their lake theory. And here's his father's thoughts on this.
3: Investigators' best guess at the time and the theory that persisted in the public realm for years was that Josh, who was drinking that night, fell into Stumpf Lake. Has the water theory been
0: ruled out? That theory, I think, could be put to rest.
3: It's been ruled out, but Josh's dad believes detectives lost valuable time that should have been spent investigating other theories. Brian had to request himself twice to bring in the elite Trident dive team to definitively clear the bodies of water months after the disappearance. Hour one, Castriba, the sheriff at the time, said he's in the lake, end of story. I says, well, what if you're wrong? You better start doing something else. (laughs) Nope. You just hear the
1: frustration, God. Yeah,
0: he's very, uh, even to this day, he's very unhappy with how the investigation was handled. Mm-hmm. Because, again, he was told by the sheriff he's in the lake, and he's like, mm-hmm. "Okay, well, why don't you go if you know if you feel like confident he's in the lake, then go dive the lake?" Because obviously they like they did the dragging, but that doesn't necessarily mean that they got the entire bottom of the, of the lake. Yeah, and they but really also are wasting. You know, well, yeah, and time. I mean this. There was a big search. like There was a lot. They have horseback. They had a ton of people searching the area around it, which is a big area of land, so there is a possibility he could have went out in the forest and they just never ran across where he ended up passing away, but there's also a major possibility that he's not even near this campus at any point. It seems like all of the law enforcement resources are going into searching the campus and the area surrounding the camp you know the immediate area surrounding the campus the forest the lakes things like that Mm -hmm. when i think brian's like well what about the possibility he left campus early on it doesn't seem like there's any indication that they're looking beyond outside of the campus or any other sort of potential suspect that could have maybe come onto campus and then took him away from campus which is interesting
1: of course it's possible he may have been harmed by someone he knew or maybe someone he was close with. So, of course, they looked at his close friends. And one of Joshua's roommates said that he had heard an argument between Nick and Josh the night before he went missing. The argument was about Katie, Josh's ex. People have been speculating that Katie and Nick were involved romantically in some way. Josh and Katie had only been broken up for a few months when he disappeared. And Katie and Nick both admitted that they were close, and there had been some level of interest in each other. They considered becoming more than friends, and they kissed once or twice. But they decided that they weren't going to go down that route, so their relationship didn't go any further than that. And Katie and Nick were together the night that Josh disappeared. Katie initially told police that Nick left her place around 1 to one thirty a.m., but Nick said that he left Katie's around 2.30 a.m., and his key card record showed that he came back to the dorm at 2.42. That was less than a 10-minute drive, from Katie's back to Nick's.
0: What do you think about that? The dis- discrepancy in their statements?
1: I mean, it's hard to say right. when it gets late at night like that, I start like,
0: it's not like we're talking yeah. hours and hours and hours We're yeah. like, for of discrepancy. We're talking like maybe an hour.
1: I think it'd be easy to be confused and you know, you never really know you're going to need to recall events from a night like that until you have
0: to, yeah. you and know, is it possible that, Katie maybe fell asleep and maybe she thought Nick left at one thirty, but Nick was actually there yeah. longer. I mean, there's tons of and left later.
1: She may have just been giving her best guess. I mean, she said one to one thirty, so she doesn't fully know
0: if you're looking at this from an investigative perspective. you are saying, okay, well there's, there's an hour or so of time there that is unaccounted for based mm-hmm. on their statements. So yeah. could something have happened within that hour? And I'm like, I I just don't yeah. see how it'd no. be possible to pull off a no. a murder and like do all of, it doesn't make any sense whatsoever mm-hmm. and they weren't even in the same areas so I don't know. Yeah,
2: no, I think that's a stretch for sure. Yeah. Especially yeah. like and I was saying you're in college, it's late at night, you've been hanging out all night. Yeah. Like there's plenty of times where I was late at night and then if someone were to ask me what time I got home, I would have been like, I don't know, yeah. 1 or 2, something
1: like that, you know. Yeah, most nights like that I barely even looked at the clock. Right. But anyway, The police did want to bring in Nick for a polygraph. And at first he agreed and the test was scheduled, but then Nick ended up backing out. He explained later that he knew that polygraphs were unreliable and he didn't want to get a false positive result. Do you think that's sketchy? I mean,
3: he's
0: he's like a law student. I think he knows that. And he said himself, he did. He was worried that what if it, you know, there's a false positive and then it sends the police on a wild goose chase after, you know, to look into him further. But Mm -hmm. then on the flip side, refusing a you know if you don't have anything to hide why not just take a polygraph but as we've seen they're very very unreliable they
1: are and polygraphs are just a sketchy area you know i mean i understand kind of the hesitance i don't know i don't i mean what do i truly know but i don't get that vibe because the way the the way the police sort
0: of you know they kind of like like oh well he agreed to it initially so i don't know what changed or Mm -hmm. you know why would he then change his mind last minute and then cancel it but at the same time, they're like, it's not completely strange for somebody to just, re- you know, deny. No, a happens a lot, actually.
1: Yeah. And there was some speculation that Nick could have done something to Josh after an argument about Katie, but they denied having any involvement in his disappearance. And they were frustrated that they were being looked at when the truth about Josh was still out there. They just wanted to know who did something to
0: Josh. Which I get why, you know, they at least have to look at it. I mean, just like with any case, you got to look at who's closest to the victim. But from all of the information that we have, there's no motive there whatsoever. I mean, Mm -hmm. Josh had broken up with Katie. They were friends and Nick said that they were also friends and it wasn't like there's this like crazy love triangle going on and there's no evidence that that was going on. So Mm -mm. I think that kind of rules them out.
1: So by the time two weeks had passed since Josh's disappearance, Nick packed up his things and moved out of the apartment. And as the weeks turned into months, the investigation slowed the search parties grew less and less frequent. There was no sign of Josh anywhere and his loved ones were absolutely heartbroken. His parents were begging the police to do more to find their son. They still were holding out hope that maybe Josh would be found alive. And since they weren't satisfied with how the police were handling the case, they decided to take matters into their own hands. And that involved teaming up with the family of Chris Jenkins. Chris was a University of Minnesota student who had also gone missing, but from Minneapolis on October 31st, 2002, so Halloween. And this was a little over a week before Josh disappeared. The two families tried working together to find their missing sons. They hired a bloodhound named Hoover. And Hoover actually traced Chris Jenkins' scent to the St. John Abbey and showed signs of wanting to follow the scent into the building. However, the dog was blocked. From entering the Abbey. Hoover also tracked Josh's scent from Menton Court to Stump Lake and then to his apartment and finally the Abbey. And the bloodhound was again blocked from entering the Abbey.
0: This is strange. Why Very wouldn't strange. they let the bloodhound go into the Abbey? I know. We're talking, this is In like both a religious too. establishment. Yeah. Very uh, weird. That worships God, and yet they're not going to help the investigation by just letting the dog go through it very sketchy yeah
1: really really weird and for the dog to go there twice i mean yeah so weird
0: did you know that bloodhounds have 300 million scent receptors in their nose yeah i
1: actually did know that more so than any
0: other breed Mm -hmm. they can track scents like up to 300 hours old or more
1: yeah they're amazing
0: like if there is a dog that's going to be fairly accurate at following scent it's a bloodhound a bloodhound's your your best bet and the fact like you said they both go to the abbey that's and th- and I'll and I'll comment on this more later but this is I'm very mm-hmm. very stuck on the abbey and you'll see why here mm-hmm. in a little bit What's interesting to me I was thinking about well why does he keep going to the lake and I'm thinking because the lake's kind of in between where he would have walked you know there's like so there's the lake and then there's a path that kind of goes from one side to the other and mm-hmm. kind of wraps around the lake and a lake would amplify the scent right it's not like a river running the scent away downstream it's just sitting you know it's water sitting there Mm so it makes it would make sense that the dog would then you know he may have walked near the lake or maybe in it for all we know and you know on the shores or something like that and perhaps that's why the bloodhound's going to the lake but i don't know That was just a thought i don't know if that's accurate or not
1: so about a week later on january 5th 2003 hoover tracked josh's scent to the abbey again He was finally given access to enter the building this time, and Hoover tracked Josh's scent inside to the back of the building, and then he tracked it to a lake that's only a few hundred feet behind the abbey. And only three days later, a news release attacked Hoover's credibility. It also stated that there was no evidence of any of the St. John's monks or staff being connected to Josh's disappearance. Ten days later, Hoover traced Josh's scent once again to the lake behind the abbey, that day, a St. John staff member asked the search group to leave the campus property. They stated that pets were not allowed on campus, and the group was interfering with the sheriff's department search.
2: Okay, but here's the thing: he's not a pet. Yeah, it's not like they're just walking their dog. Oh, can we go into the abbey? Yeah, it's you like think he's doing a job, and right, he's been there multiple times, signaling
1: an important job, right? In a serious situation, you'd think that rules like that would just go out the window, but. Something's weird here, people. Now, this is where we're going to get into one of the most predominant theories of Josh's disappearance, and that is the theory that monks or a monk at the St. John's Abbey had something to do with Josh's disappearance.
0: So the Abbey was basically a place where Benedictine monks at St. John's lived. It was one of the biggest Benedictine monasteries in the country. And a lot of these monks also worked as professors, teachers, and counselors as well as pastors at the college and prep school. But numerous reports have uncovered that over 100 St. John's community members are sexual predators. And most of these community members are priests living at the Abbey. But the offenders also include staff members at the university, the prep school, museum, and the School of Theology, as well as the Benedictine nuns. So that is very alarming. Yeah, it Basically, is. Basically, the entire school yeah. is filled with with pedophiles yeah
2: Yeah. mind you there's 2000 students yeah so Mm -hmm. I would assume maybe a couple hundred staff members yeah a hundred of them yeah yeah what the hell
0: which also explains why the staff members are like get this bloodhound out of here we don't yeah that's not like come on that is yeah huge red flag that
1: makes a little more sense now right
0: right the abuse was widespread through the entire St. John's community for decades a conservative estimate puts the number of victims at well over 300 Victims have been coming forward since at least the 1960s, so allegations of abuse have cropped up repeatedly and made high-profile news for a long time. And much of the abuse was actively covered up by St. John's. Many of these offending priests were given the standard Catholic Church intervention and put on safety plans. So their punishment was basically being sent to some religious treatment center and or being shuffled to different parishes. Even after offending, many of these priests or community members were allowed to come back to campus and remain part of the church community. Some dangerous priests were put on St. John's safety plans that were somehow supposed to protect the community. But a lot of these priests had plans that allowed them to be on campus, mingling with college students and children at the prep school, and instead of turning over the allegations to law enforcement, the abuse was hushed up to prevent lawsuits and scandals. Plenty of staff members in the St. John's community knew about instances of abuse and did nothing. In many cases, they turned a blind eye or actively covered up the allegations to protect the school's image and reputation. Josh was livid when he found out about a recent wave of abuse allegations. According to Nick, as part of a paper for school, Josh started doing research into the abuse scandal. Josh's mom also said that he was angry that many offending priests were still allowed to roam freely on campus. This is very interesting to me. He's researching the abuse scandals Mm -hmm. for school. What if whoever he was writing this for, whatever class this was, whatever professor it was, was perhaps involved, Mm -hmm. was part of the cover up, and then notified whoever it is that actively covers up these things, or potentially did something to Josh. But Josh's hard drive showed that at 8.52 a.m. on October 3rd, 2002, he searched for the phrase, quote-unquote, St. John's Abbey, statue of limitations, conspiracy. And then on October 22nd, he viewed a news article titled, St. John's Launches Ad Campaign to Counter Image Woes. So clearly Josh knew about the abuses and the cover-up attempts. In fact, some sexually violent monks worked as resident advisors in the dorms, including Josh's dorm and met in court. So it's been theorized that one or more of these sexually violent monks hurt Josh and his death is being covered up. There is one priest in particular who has been brought up as Josh's possible abductor. His name was Father Bruce Wolmering. Bruce had been a monk and a priest at St. John's since the 60s. He was a professor and the head of the St. John's psychology department.
2: That's fucking real Oh my
0: God. In February of 2003, a male student athlete at St. John's accused Bruce of sexual abuse. The abuse occurred during a class that he was teaching that ran from fall 2002 into spring of 2003. And keep in mind this is all in the same time frame of Josh's mm-hmm. disappearance. So there is active sexual abuse going on right at the time that Josh disappears when he's writing a paper. Yeah. Basically What are the chances Looking into the abuse scandal. Other allegations against Bruce also came to light during this time. Bruce had sexually abused a 14-year-old boy in 1969 and more male high school and college students throughout the years. He was a known sexual predator at St. John's Experts believe that the number of his victims is over 120, and this guy is employed. Yep, still. What?
1: Well, not still, but back then. What the fuck?
0: The president of the university and head of the abbey were made aware of these allegations. However, Bruce was still allowed to continue teaching through the end of spring. Law enforcement, of course, was never notified about any of the allegations against him. He was required to resign as psychology department head. However, it was announced that it was for health and personal reasons. Of course. And of course, there was no mention of the allegations. Bruce was required to inform students of the allegations and offer an apology for any inappropriate behavior, but this never happened. Mm. Bruce had also been a counselor since the 1970s. This gave him access to thousands of vulnerable potential victims. He was required to stop counseling, but a St. John's employee reported that he continued to counsel students for several months, even though his supervisor knew he wasn't allowed to. Bruce ended up retiring from the university in 2004 in seemingly good standing. And he actually died in 2009 at the Abbey under circumstances that many people consider suspicious. Man, my alarms are going off in my head right now. Oh yeah. The Abbey published an obituary for Bruce that made no mention, of course, of his sexual abuses or any of the other crimes he committed. The allegations against him were not even made public until 2006. And this was probably because school officials knew that a link between Bruce and Josh's disappearance or the abuse of a star, St. John's athlete, would be devastating for the schools. In these and many other cases, they put funding and image before justice. A professor at St. John's wrote a psychological profile of Josh's potential abductor, and this profile was a direct match for Bruce. In fact, internal documents showed that officials at the university were worried about a link between Bruce and Josh's disappearance. After Bruce's death, his room at the Abbey was sealed off and searched for two days by the Stearns County Sheriff's Department and they have not released their findings. In the initial search of Josh's dorm right after he went missing, the police didn't take out his computer or anything like that. Because again, their initial investigation was just that he was missing mm-hmm. and wasn't revolving around the possibility of foul play yet. They believed there had been maybe some sort of accident or Josh had just gone somewhere and would turn up soon.
2: I know Josh, you were mentioning like, oh, well at first, You know, when someone's just hasn't shown back up at their dorm, you know, 12 hours or so, they're not going to treat it as like a crime scene necessarily. But I do think it's lame that they didn't bother to do a little bit more searching, you know, on his computer, um, Mm -hmm. talking to other, you know, students in the same building, stuff like that. Just because we hear so many times when we're covering cases that police just kind of go in and like, oh, he probably left on their own Mm -hmm. or you know, oh, they'll probably turn up or there's not much we can do. And I just think it's so frustrating that a lot of the times I feel like, yes, maybe they don't have to go full blown and start doing fingerprint dusting. But I think they could be taking these things more seriously because we always talk about how when someone goes missing, the first few hours Mm -hmm. of the missing is the most crucial. So why are we not taking it more seriously? I know.
1: And you would hope that nowadays... There would be better practices in place, but we still see this with most cases mm-hmm. that yeah, was, basic things like this are missed. I mean, not always, but I more you, than they should be.
0: If you were to ask this to any family member who's had a loved one go missing, they would all agree with you, Janelle. I think I think the issue is the criminal justice system. I yeah. think it's the laws. Yeah. And I mean, I think technically in order to go and search somebody's computer, you need like a search warrant in order to go and like actually actively search into people's personal oh, belongings true, yeah. and, and gain access to like personal information. And but still like that. I
1: feel like there was more that they could do a more thorough search, more urgency. I,
0: I get that. But again, when you're if you're investigating this and there's no you're out of college and nine times out of ten that person shows up a couple days later or a day later because they I were know, out but staying it's about that
1: else. one time
0: no i know and that's the difficult thing is like those you know the first 48 hours or whatever is the most crucial time but yeah if if. You're not able to legally do something from an investigative standpoint then what what can you do so unless laws change where if police suspect something foul that's the thing if police would have to suspect that but give them probable cause to think that a crime has has occurred before because think about on the flip side that if we were to allow law enforcement to go in and you know how many so like say somebody thought you were missing law enforcement comes in they start searching your computer and all of a sudden they discover that you're buying, you know, ecstasy on the dark web and then all of a sudden you're like, "Oh, I was fine. I was just at my friend's house last night." Now you're getting arrested and going to to prison because law enforcement just was able to gain access to your no, information. So it's, it's 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 like a, it's difficult mm-hmm. both ways, but I get why it's set up the way that it is. Until there's probable cause or, you know, reasonable suspicion that a crime has been has occurred, then it you doesn't allow them to go the next step. That. But that's the, that's the thing. And that's what's so hard. That's the hard like, part about missing persons mm-hmm. cases is that most of the time there isn't that, that isn't there until yeah. later on.
1: And in every hour that goes by, the chances of finding a missing person just go down. Right. You know, so it's just
0: Imagine, like, imagine time ha- is of the essence. Right. Imagine had they been able to access his computer, had seen that he was researching this abuse scandal at the Abbey, maybe that would have right let, led them straight to the Abbey right away or something else was going on or... Yeah, it's, it's really tough. It, it really know. is. I'm
2: not a law expert by any means, but it makes me think like, what if there was a way to allow police to go in and look for something having to do with the issue at hand and like they say, yeah, they find that you're,
0: Buying committing another dark? crime well that- I guess
2: like to a certain extent obviously if I'm yeah. like wait this person's a murderer yeah. okay well they yeah. can't be like mm, we're ignoring that but if I don't know it's almost like some type of safe haven type right. law exactly.
1: where you would be exempt from like they couldn't prosecute other you for something but, else you
0: are like, doing like something
2: yeah. I don't want to say like as small as but okay it, buying ecstasy on the dark web is a lot smaller than yeah killing someone. You know what I mean? Right. But so. yeah,
1: in rare circumstances. But people I, would
0: say that's a violent, that's like yeah, unlawful and search and seizure. I get that. Right? That's like against the constitution. But if so. it could
1: save your life, I don't know. I mean, yeah, it's hard. We could go on all day.
0: So this is the reason why his room wasn't closed off or secured as a crime scene, which meant that anyone can go in and out who has access, like roommates, and they could get gain access to his stuff. So like obviously there's frustration that, you know, why didn't they go in there and, search it harder and like you know but at that point because it wasn't a crime scene nothing's being preserved in there so if they were to go back and, and do all this forensics on it that likely it it would never be admissible in court even if it did leave to something because it wasn't preserved yeah um that that's the difficult thing with it but as time went on and there was still no sign of josh the police you know obviously as time goes on they started putting pieces together it does give you that you know they're able to either get a search warrant or able to get be okay to search his computer or they were, you know, maybe the family gave them permission at some point I think the, the belongings get, you know, go back to the parents and maybe the parents gave the, the computer to law enforcement and Brian, his dad, um, I believe is the one who did that. So that that's where they find some very interesting stuff to say the least. So one thing is Josh's computer showed that there was a computer washer program that was used, which, to put this in a perspective this was it's called internetwasher.com this was back in like early 2000s so but this I'm is basically looking. like a c cleaner type tool it just wipes your cookies uh, internet history basically things like that basically whatever you were searching for online is going to wipe it off the computer which is true to some extent it, it takes it off the first level but the data is still there on the hard drive There's 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 really only one way to destroy your data on your hard drive, and that is to physically destroy the the disk and, you know, all the sectors of, of the hard drive or use a very, very powerful tool that, like, nukes. The reason I know this is that I used to work, um, well, I worked in IT, but I worked at Geek Squad, and this was one of the things that we would actually have to do. Uh, it, it was called, uh, it was used to, we had a tool called Nukem or something like that, and basically whenever we'd have, like, a, um, you know, a cu- say a customer buys a, a laptop, goes home, uses it for a while, brings it back, and returns it. Well, what do you do with that? You've got customer data on that. Mm-hmm. So we'd have to like nuke the hard drive basically, um, and a lot of a lot of different computer companies have their own software to do this, but it basically like overwrites all the sectors on the hard drive and basically wipes it, re- and then you do a fresh install of the operating system. But the data is still there unless this happens. So even if you just use an internet tool like this, the data's still there, just because the files may be deleted from the desktop or from the GUI, the graphical interface. If you know how to go into more of like a command line, you know, kind of hack into it, so to speak, you can still access the datas and the files and, and see what's on there. So they were able to see that this program was on his computer, and apparently Josh hadn't used this washer program before. It wasn't characteristic of any of his usual computer activities, and this washer program was actually used for the first time several days after Josh went missing, which is key. So someone that wasn't Josh used the program after he disappeared. Now investigators don't know who deleted the files or why. They also didn't know what the deleted files or their contents were. They just knew that the washer program was used. So, and and this will make a lot more sense once we actually talk about what, what they found. But that is definitely suspicious.
1: So now we're going to talk about some other cases that people have speculated could be related to Josh's disappearance. And we're going to start with who we have already mentioned, Chris Jenkins, who was a college student that disappeared around the same time that Josh went missing. Chris had been drinking at a Halloween party at a bar in Minneapolis when he vanished. On February 28th, 2003, his body was found in the Mississippi River in downtown Minneapolis. He was still wearing his Halloween costume. And what's weird is his arms and legs were crossed and he was holding some of his own hair in his hands. His cause of death was determined as drowning. And the police said at first that Chris was drunk and either fell or jumped off a bridge downtown. But his parents always insisted that Chris was a victim of foul play. Obviously, it was highly unusual for his arms and legs to be crossed if he jumped or fell. Plus, the hair in his hand was very odd. So the family hired a private investigator to look further into the case. Sure enough, in 2006, the police reclassified the case as a homicide and apologized to the family. They believed that Chris was pushed or thrown off of the bridge. They also announced that they had an unnamed suspect in custody for questioning, but apparently nothing ever came of this, and his murder is still unsolved to this day. And again, the bloodhound Hoover had picked up Chris's scent near the Abbey. We don't know what possible connection this has to the rest of the case or if there's any other evidence that connects Chris to the Abbey, but it is certainly weird. Six days after Chris disappeared, a 22-year-old college student named Michael Knoll went missing from Eau Claire, Wisconsin. He disappeared after celebrating his own birthday at a party, and just three days later, Josh disappeared. Michael's body was found in Half Moon Lake about a year later, which is near the University of Wisconsin-Eau Claire, where he was studying. And his cause of death was listed as drowning. The police believe that he accidentally drowned after a night of heavy drinking. Also, 21-year-old Erica Dalquist went missing on October 30th, 2002 from Brainerd, Minnesota. She was last seen leaving a bar after accepting a ride home from a man. 18 months later, Her remains were found on the property of her killer's grandparents. The killer was a longtime suspect in her case. So many people believe that these cases were linked. All of the victims lived near Minneapolis and they were all around the same age. And Chris, Michael, and Josh were all bright, involved college men. But police have said that there are glaring differences in these cases that ruled out a connection between them. Many people also believe that Josh's case was connected to the kidnapping of. 11-year-old Jacob Wetterling. Jacob was abducted at gunpoint on the night of October 22nd, 1989 in Painesville, Minnesota. His case went unsolved for almost three decades, but recently in 2016, his remains were found and his killer was arrested. Some people believe that Josh may have been a victim of the so-called smiley face killers, which that whole thing just totally freaks me out. But from the late 90s to 2010, there were many instances of college-age men being found dead in bodies of water across the Midwest. The smiley face killer theory basically connects many of these cases and says that the men didn't drown accidentally. Instead, they were murdered by a gang of serial killers. This supposed gang gets their name from the smiley face graffiti that is found near where some of their victims are found. Josh would have a similar victim profile based on his age and gender, But experts in the Smiley Face case say there are too many dissimilarities with Josh's case. For one, Josh's body hasn't been found. Searches of the lakes have turned up nothing, which points to Josh not being in a body of water.
0: Which I I think is a a good assumption, right? Yeah. This likely isn't the work of the Smiley Face killers. I mean, the whole point of theirs is leaving behind some indication that it was a Smiley Face killers. Mm -hmm. Um, It's like part of... Their thing. So, and then also obviously the body not being found. Mm
3: -hmm.
1: So, now we're going to take a look at some of the incidents that occurred on the St. John's campus. There were multiple reports of men on campus being kidnapped or followed around the time that Josh disappeared. An SJU student named Anthony reported having a terrifying encounter on campus around the same week or so that Josh disappeared. He said that he was walking home late at night when a car pulled up alongside him and there were four men inside and the men warned him that their friend recently had been injured or killed by the stone bridge and he was about to cross this bridge. And keep in mind, this is the same stone bridge that Josh's scent was traced to. They told him for his own safety that they would give him a ride back to his dorm. Anthony agreed and got in the car. But the men didn't drive him back to his dorm. Instead, they drove him to a swampy, secluded area of campus and stopped the car. One of the men said, time to pay the price for the ride. And he ordered Anthony to get into the front seat and perform oral sex on the driver. When the car doors opened, Anthony made a run for it. The other men got out of the car and chased after him. But luckily, Anthony was able to outrun them, and he made it home safely. Also, in November of 2002, a young man in St. Joseph was almost kidnapped outside of a bar. That night, he had been chatting with some friends inside the bar, and when he walked outside, some men tried pushing him into the back seat of a car. And luckily, he was able to escape. About a year later, August of 2003, a male SJU student was walking on campus late at night when he got the sense that he was being watched. There was a car nearby that seemed to be following him. The car then stopped in a parking lot. That the student was walking towards, and as he walked inside the lot, he noticed that everyone in the car was staring at him, and watching him. The student got a bad feeling about the car, and luckily sprinted away. Police were also interested in reports of an orange Pontiac Sunfire that was seen around campus in 2002. This vehicle was spotted multiple times before Josh disappeared in darker, remote areas of the campus. And these areas were often sort of a meet up or hookup area, and they were you know, sort of out of the way and not well lit. St. John's Campus Safety had two reports where they tried to approach the vehicle. The first time when they drove up behind the car, a college-aged man jumped out of the passenger seat. The orange Pontiac drove away while the college male ran into the woods. In a second instance, Campus Safety was able to talk to the college-aged male in the passenger seat of the Sunfire, but in both cases, the male student was not identified. The police tracked down and talked to the owner of the car, and he said he was just dropping a student off at campus. Investigators tried to find the car in question to test it for forensic evidence, but the car was eventually crushed and scrapped.
0: Clearly, there's a terrifying gang of predators roaming around this campus. Oh, yeah. Just unchecked. That's, that's crazy. I mean, I'm sure there's even more than what we were able to find. Mm -hmm. And I'm sure there's a lot of encounters like this that were never even reported. Oh, man. But as the years have gone on, Josh's family have said that they feel like the local police department is shutting them out of the investigation. In fact, in 2004, Josh's dad, Brian, was slapped with a restraining order, barring him from going on or near the St. John's campus without prior arrangements.
1: It's ridiculous.
0: It's evil, honestly. St. John's filed the temporary restraining order after they claimed that Brian was verbally abusing students and staff and the order was put in place for two years. In 2005, three years after Josh disappeared, a vigil was held in his memory. These vigils have continued each year since Josh's disappearance. His family and friends hope that renewed interest in the case will generate new leads and tips. Investigators actually got more answers in 2008 when a detective took another look at Josh's hard drive. As it turns out, the computer washer program hadn't been as effective as advertised. It could only delete items like cookies, cache, and browser history. And new technology allowed investigators to access files that they hadn't been able to see before. And most of the files had been permanently deleted, but about a third of them were still recoverable. The first thing they found was that Josh had been spending some time on Yahoo Personals, which was a dating website. They found three different profiles that Josh had been likely using. One of these screen names had part of Josh's name and the zip code for Collegeville. But in October of 2002, Josh started spending a lot more time on Yahoo Personals, and this involved spending hours in chat rooms that were very sexual in nature. He was also spending time on the Yahoo Personals webcams, although we don't know if he went on camera himself. Josh had actually created two female profiles with the usernames CoochieCoo2002 and GwenGirlBigJugs. The investigators discovered that Josh had actually been posing as a woman and chatting with men online. They also found that Josh had been watching both heterosexual and homosexual porn. During his time on Yahoo Personals, Josh chatted with both men and women. He also spent some time chatting with straight couples and watching their webcams. But most of the time he was talking to men of all sexual orientations. People close to Josh reported that they didn't get any sort of indication that Josh was gay or transgender. Katie also said that she never got any impression from Josh that he was attracted to men. Nick didn't either. And he said he would have been surprised if he found out that Josh was gay but it seems pretty clear that at the time, Josh was experimenting with his sexuality. On October 28th, 2002, Josh had a 27 minute phone call with an unknown individual. Right after this phone call, Josh went on Yahoo Personals and reported another user for violating the terms of service. Immediately after that, Josh deleted all three of his accounts and erased Yahoo Personals from his computer. So clearly it seems like something happened that day that spooked Josh into deleting Yahoo Personals. We don't know for sure if the call was connected to him deleting his profiles, but it definitely seems likely. However, since Josh was using a phone card, we don't know who he was talking to. We also don't know the contents of the Yahoo Personals report or who the user was.
2: I don't want to make any assumptions here, but I do feel like if this was something that Josh was experimenting with, he probably felt pretty alone because of the fact that no one else in his family really knew about this as far Mm -hmm. as, you know, we know. And also, this is during a time where it's much less acceptable to be experimenting with your sexuality, especially at a college like this. Oh yeah, and I think a lot of the times people who are in the LGBTQ plus community back in you know the early two thousands use those online chats mm-hmm. in order to feel you know safe, kind of exploring and opening up to who they who they are sexually and stuff. So I can imagine that, you know, maybe he faced some type of. Threat or harassment or something, or mm-hmm. or was worried that he would if it got out and yeah, like know. blackmail.
0: Someone's trying mm-hmm. to blackmail him or something. Like yeah. they figured out who he was and they're like, "I'm gonna expose you" or yeah. something.
1: Yeah, I feel like all those reasons you listed off could be why he was like kind of hiding this, but also, you know, if he wanted a career in politics, mm-hmm. especially back then,
3: to yeah, have a future, especially
1: in the Republican Party. Yep, you know, probably Absolutely. felt like he couldn't be himself.
0: The police also found something very interesting on the hard drive. They discovered deleted photos of almost 30 men. The men ranged in age from young adults around Josh's age to middle-aged men. And these photos were all square shaped with men smiling and showing only their faces or upper bodies. So they clearly looked like profile pictures of some sort. The hard drive also showed that someone made multiple Google searches after Josh went missing. They looked up phrases like Collegeville, Amber Alert, internet washer trial, Joshua Gimon and America's Most Wanted. The user also checked their webmail and downloaded two programs the internet washer and a file compressor, which, if you don't know what a file compressor is, it basically takes a group of files and compresses them down to make the files smaller, which makes it easier to move the files like putting them on a jump drive. So, during the period of computer activity, someone in fact did insert a USB drive into the computer, but we don't know what files were moved to the USB drive. In fact, we don't know if any files were moved at all, so that remains a complete mystery. There was actually a file containing four or five images of Photoshop driver's licenses with Josh's friends' photos. Basically, they were bad fake IDs, but this file actually hadn't been deleted by the Washer program. It had stayed on the computer since the file was created. Now we do have some explanation for parts of the activity. Josh's dad, Brian, and his uncle, Paul, actively stayed in his dorm room in the days after his disappearance, as they were trying to piece together his disappearance as best as they could. Paul said that he did use Josh's computer while they were staying there, and he remembered making those searches for things like Amber Alert and Josh's name. He also said he checked his webmail. However, he said that neither him nor Brian downloaded the internet washer or file compressor. Some people think that the deleted files were the work of Josh's uncle or his dad. And the idea is that they deleted these items in order to potentially protect Josh's reputation, which, I mean, seems very likely. I mean, keep in mind, it's the early days of the investigation. So the family had every hope and belief that Josh would be found alive soon. So, the Maybe they wanted to clean up his tracks for him, so to speak, that or the items were deleted by someone involved with the crime or who had nefarious intentions. Perhaps a man Josh was talking to online that would be identified in those deleted photos, or it could have been one of Josh's roommates or friends. There's also another creepy discovery from Josh's computer. Someone had been playing music on his computer the night he disappeared from 11.52 p.m. to 12.32 a.m. But what's weird is that some songs were skipped. Which means that someone was manually playing and skipping songs from the computer the night Josh disappeared. We don't know who this person was. That is very strange because that is a very like specific time period. Because Josh would have been, yeah, not in his dorm. And by all accounts, his roommate was at Katie's. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So who was in there? Which there is a possibility, though, this was some type of error, though, and that, like, this may not be accurate. I mean, I don't know what that data would even look like. I don't even know how you would know that data.
2: I was going to say, is there a way to track, like,
0: because that's very specific yeah. to a program, and I don't—I've never seen a an audio player actually create files based on songs being skipped. But it's possible, maybe they found that within the player itself. That's that's strange, though. I wonder what it was—like Napster or something. I wonder what they were listening to. I'm trying to think of what audio players are like, an internet radio. I don't know. That's strange. It's also possible that the actual timestamps themselves were actually in a different uh, time zone or something like that. Cause sometimes like computer time and program oh, yeah, time might yeah. be yeah. off depending on where that program is from. You know, there's a lot of discretions yeah. there. So could be something, but it also could be nothing. In 2013, an age progression was created to show what Josh might look like now and the netflix series unsolved mysteries recently did an episode on josh's case and as part of the episode the stearns county sheriff's department released the photos of the men found on josh's computer for the first time so even though they had these photos since 2008 they hadn't released this info to the public until october 2022 so just a few months ago that's a lot of time i mean if there's a possibility there's a person of interest or something like that on there that's a lot of time to let go Mm -hmm. by because guarantee all those people look way different or Oh, Some totally. may not even be around. I mean, you or, you know, yeah. you may never know who they are. Josh's father, Brian, has been very critical of the way the Stearns County Sheriff's Department has handled Josh's case. He had no idea these photos existed until he saw the Unsolved Mysteries episode air. That's oh my absurd
1: God. to not even let him know that it's going to be coming out. That's it's so crazy. weird. Like, and I mean, I'm sure Unsolved Mysteries didn't know that his father didn't right. know they existed. But yeah, the police, why wouldn't they at least alert him? Like, hey, heads up, this is going to be in this series. The first time you're going to see this is on TV. Fucking outrageous.
0: So Brian actually tried to sue the Stearns County Sheriff's Department to have the case file released to him, but he lost the lawsuit. He wants the department to thoroughly investigate St. John's and the monks with abuse allegations against them, which why the hell is not that not going on? Yeah. Which makes me think maybe the sheriff's department's protecting Mm -hmm. this university
2: very well could be and
0: perhaps there's connections there that we don't know about it was interesting that in the episode believe he's a detective working on it he like started tearing up and like there's this moment where Mm -hmm. they're like you know he's talking about how this is impacting him and he's like and just i don't know it was like it was kind of a I don't know. I had mixed feelings about it. Yeah. Like I had mixed feelings of like, is he just doing this for the camera to kind of make it seem like they really care? And that yeah. you're like, oh, we have his photo up in the hallway. So we never forget about him. But I'm like, I don't know. Or maybe it's like he's, or maybe he knows more. He clearly knows more than what we've been, that's been released to public that maybe there's more going on internally than we even know. And maybe I mean, there maybe. is. Maybe we don't know that. Yeah. But. I'm just, I'm just throwing things out there. But yeah. Yeah.
1: I don't know. That was hard to determine To. I mean, of course, he could be playing up emotions to make people feel like, oh, the the department really does care about this case and has done everything we can. Yeah. yeah. Um, I found it to be authentic in my judgment. His emotions seemed real to me, but who knows? You never really know. Yeah, people.
0: You never really know. Brian believes that his son was the victim of a setup. He believes that Josh is actually still alive today being held somewhere against his will. He still holds out hope that one day they will be reunited. We've got a clip of, Brian giving his thoughts on the Sheriff's Department's unsolved mysteries
3: appearance. Where's the body? Till then, he's alive.
2: 20 years later, Brian still thinks Stearns County investigators were too focused on a theory that Josh fell into the nearby water. He even hired his own dive team to make sure.
3: I've always said all along, for whatever reason, he was set up and grabbed for something he found out or whatever. But all I can say is it's just another day. with no no answers. He says he didn't know they would be releasing the 28 photos found on Josh's computer and thinks they've had them for years. Oh, they're doing something. Oh, let's see. Why are they doing something? Oh, that's right. Unsolved Mysteries airs tomorrow and then November 10th is 20 years. All you can hope for is that one person finally decides they can't take it anymore and you know, I wouldn't want to be that person knowing something and not doing nothing. I
2: was listening to this podcast called Simply Vanished, and they had Brian and this couple who are friends of Brian's on. And the couple swears that they saw Josh in Vegas, actually, which I thought was interesting. Really? Um. So the the wife of the couple was saying how they were in Vegas on March 28th, 2003 and walking on the strip when she saw someone walking that looked just like Josh. She said that they were wearing loafers, white socks, print shorts, and a dark St. John's sweatshirt. Wow. And the person had spiked hair. And she said that this person looked extremely similar to Josh and she turned around to tell her husband. And then when her husband turned around to look, he was gone, which I just thought was interesting because Brian really does seem to think that, Josh, you know, wasn't killed and he's still out there. Here, wow.
0: Here's my one thing for that, though, is like in so many cases where people claim to see people, oftentimes they're they're wrong, but there's also an, like another St. John's University, too. So there's St. John's, Uni- this little school, yeah. St. John's University in Minnesota, but then there's St. John's University in New York City. Um, I don't know if there's affiliation between the two. They're both, I guess they're both Roman Catholics. I assume there's some but if I was trying to see if I can pull up the logos to see if they're the uh, same exactly or different.
2: I would assume they would be different.
0: Uh, yeah, they're definitely different.
2: So, so that's
0: the thing is like you could be like, oh, I saw somebody wearing a St. John's University uh apparel and then, mm-hmm. you know, it's just for the other university. Yeah. Or I mean, or there is a chance that there's obviously a chance that he could still be out there. Of course. But based on everything that we know, all signs point to that something happened to him. Because he was looking into this monastery mm-hmm. and that either that or he met somebody, he met the wrong person online through Yahoo Personals. He would be 40 years old today and he's not been heard or seen since November 10, 2002.
1: Yeah, if he was still out there, I think it'd be That'd pretty be, hard. But I mean, it, but you yeah, just it covered it. You just
0: Yeah, I mean, you just mm-hmm. covered a case where the person turned up after what, how many years?
1: Yeah, but they, the they didn't even know they different, were missing. Yeah, different situation.
0: Yeah. So, but it happens. Sometimes people. Yeah. But at the same time, you
1: can't like- ever give up hope completely. But yeah, it's it seems pretty unlikely. But some people have theorized that Josh may have been killed by a drunk driver that night and that the crime was covered up. The monks at the Abbey also allegedly had a history of problems with alcohol abuse. Also, it is still a college campus before the days of Uber. And drinking and driving among college students was always an issue. It's been considered that Josh took his own life or ran away to start over. However, there is no concrete evidence to back this theory up. His friends and family do not believe that Josh left on his own or died of suicide. Here's what they've had to say about these theories. most frustrating theory was that Josh just disappeared on his own free will, that he chose to disappear and kind of take a pause from life um, because... His friends and I knew that wasn't what happened. We knew that he didn't just disappear and take a sabbatical from life. That's not who he was. That's not something he would have ever done.
0: Josh was not suicidal. He was always talking about the future and what he was going to do next and what his career was going to be and where he was going to go.
1: He planned on going to law school once we finished college, and then from there he was going to be a lawyer, and then from there he would be a politician, and eventually he would be the president. He had goals, aspirations. He was driven. He had a plan for his life. People that have plans for their life
3: generally don't consider suicide as an option. Josh wouldn't leave everything behind to go start something else. He knew what he wanted and what it was going to take to get
0: there. Yeah, so like that kind of like discredits this Idea that he's like out in vegas walking around yeah yeah like i don't know that's no
2: i didn't necessarily believe it i just wanted to bring it up because yeah. of the fact that brian seems to find i'll be honest i think a lot of times credible.
0: podcasts and and media like to like include those citing things because it's just it gets everybody
1: well it was an interview with up. the people yeah and i know i know friends. that
0: but it's like you know, I don't know
1: i think it's interesting without any
0: credibility and again like eyewitness statements i don't know
1: He and Katie had recently broken up, but they were still good friends. And Josh had a lot to look forward to, and showed no sign of mental illness or suicidal ideation. Obviously, there are cases where people take their life who don't have mental illness or haven't talked about it before, had no signs. But you know, it just it seems very unusual to his friends and family. For the
2: most part, people who take their lives, there are some signs. Yeah,
1: in most cases, yeah. For the same reasons, it's highly unlikely that Josh disappeared voluntarily to start a new life or something like that. He was a smart kid, but starting over completely with no trace is very, very hard to pull off, especially for over 20 years with no sign that
0: he's alive at all. And let's let's not forget that he if that were the case, he didn't bring any of his stuff, mm-hmm. car, yeah. wallet, contacts case, yeah. like, at the very yeah. least, take your contacts case, like, yeah. It, there's just absolutely no evidence to suggest that that's what happened. And, and like you said, it's very difficult to pull that off,
1: mm-hmm.
2: especially when he was had so many plans.
0: Yeah. Right. How does that help your future plans of becoming president? If you start over and live under some other identity, it just, it just makes no sense.
1: And like we said, at first, the police believe that Josh died on his walk home and that his death was an accident. They thought that he was intoxicated when he left the party and that he fell into the lake and drowned. However, like we said before, the nearby lakes were searched and Josh's body was not found. Also, many of the people at the party said that Josh was not intoxicated and that he could have maybe been buzzed or lightly drunk at best. For him to have fallen into a lake and drowned, he would have had to be very drunk at this party to the point where his intoxication would be unmistakable and immediately apparent to anyone at the party josh's family believes that he was abducted by someone some people believe that josh could have been a victim of a random abductor who saw a crime of opportunity again the perpetrator could have been someone from the internet one of those men perhaps stalked him that night and took him that or josh was meeting up with a man on the internet Something went wrong during that meeting, and maybe this man had criminal intentions from the start. This might explain why Josh seemingly just got up and left the party without saying goodbye to anyone. If he told his friends that he was meeting up with someone that he met online, there's a good chance they would have been understandably worried and tried to talk him out of going. And it seems like if Josh was keeping his experiments with his sexuality a secret, he would be even less inclined to tell his friends. He couldn't just get up and tell someone that he was going to meet up or hook up with someone that he met online. That or maybe there had been no plan to meet up at all. Maybe one of the men found out otherwise that the female profile was actually Josh. And maybe that man was so angry that he set out to find the person behind the profile and harm him. Then there's the theory that Josh's disappearance is connected to the Abbey or the sex abuse taking place at St. John's. At the time of Josh's disappearance, multiple victims were bringing lawsuits against St. John's for the abuse that they suffered in the school's cover-ups. Again, Josh's scent was tracked to the abbey, and he was very angry about the sex abuse crimes committed by these monks. Some people think that a monk or monks abducted Josh either to sexually abuse him, to stop his investigation, or both. And then... Killed him. Then, of course, there's a theory that someone close to Josh could have done something to him, like a friend or a roommate. But the police were able to question all the students at the party. However, Josh's mom believes that the students at the party know more than they're telling police. I think with the amount of sexual abuse, though, at that campus, that there's a high chance that it has mm-hmm. something to do with that.
0: I keep going in my mind that why wouldn't, the, why wouldn't these men of God allow you know, anybody to come in and search, you know, just uh, give them peace of mind, let yeah. them come in and search mm-hmm. the Abbey. Yeah, and, and to if there's
1: Tyler's n- restraining order against his father. That's so extreme. Like, I don't know.
0: But again, like investigators are like, oh, there's no evidence. There's no evidence that they found that links Joshua to the Abbey, other than the the tracker dog, yes. which investigators have said yeah. they have no faith in. So And that, what's up
1: with Chris's scent also being tracked back there? I mean, that's weird. I don't know. Big, I, I big question mark way. on
0: that. But My other thing too, though, is there's a lot of men in that picture. And there's a lot of predators that prey upon people in these chat rooms. And it is very possible that he just ran into the wrong person, some type of sexual predator through Yahoo Personals. I mean, I... I remember getting like a safety lesson back in the day about chat rooms and like there's dangerous people and don't ever meet up with anybody from these chat rooms that you don't know. And like, and I know there's endless amounts of crime that have occurred in these chat rooms and murders and all sorts of horrific things that have happened based on interactions in these types of, of public chat rooms and messaging platforms. So there is a possibility that whoever abducted Josh and potentially murdered him, is one of those men that, you know, those profile pictures that they recovered from his hard drive and they're just, you know, I, I think that's kind of your next step in the investigation to see if you can identify every single one of those men in those pictures and then continue to investigate who they are and like go down that. Mm-hmm. that but the, again, they have no, they just have profile pictures. They've gotta like, how do you, how do you even begin to investigate from one profile picture from 20 years ago? Mm-hmm. It's like, it's so much time has gone by that yeah. It's just going to be super difficult to yeah. to to continue the investigation from this point. So I get, I understand Brian's frustration 100%. I'd be absolutely livid too. I'd be like, you let this all mm-hmm. just stay under wraps. And, you know, when Brian probably would have gotten his own resources to begin tracking down who these people were yeah. at the time of his son's disappearance, right? like they could have went and probably located these people in that, around that same time period versus 20 years later, good luck. It's going to be yeah. so hard to do that.
1: I think he's right that their best chance is someone will feel guilty enough and just come forward one day. But or, I don't know. What or are the chances his, of his yeah
0: or his remains turn up or something. Yeah. But I mean, who knows? I mean, he could be anywhere in the world at this point yeah. if that's the case. Because I mean, just so much time and mm-hmm. I mean, there's there may not even be a trace of him left on on anywhere. So it's just it's it's a horrific situation and just I it can't is. even imagine the. Anguish and anxiety, and just, uh oh, just thinking like the what mm-hmm. ifs, the unknowns. The that's just torture every day, having life. no clue. Yeah, and just holding on to hope that your son is alive somewhere, and, and having to hopefully just hopefully run resurface. through all the
1: possibilities in your mind that would just drive someone insane. I can't imagine being in that situation. I just feel so much for his parents, for all his friends, and just, oh, it's terrible.
0: And it brings, I mean, Brian brings up a point of like sometimes law enforcement just gets stuck on one theory mm-hmm. they just get stuck on like the most plausible theory is like oh he mm-hmm. got drunk and went into the lake and drowned or you know and they spend yeah. so much of the, that initial time investigating of a, a accidental death or drowning or you know he ended up in in a body of water when the whole time he was abducted and taken who knows where yep. by some unknown individual he met on yahoo personal so i mean just i mean there's endless possibilities but i think it I think it's definitely either somebody he met on yahoo personal some type of predator he met that something went wrong between an interaction mm-hmm. and that person did something to him or these you know predator monks at st john's university had something to do with it i mean again his roommate said that he was investigating this but law enforcement was like oh there's no, but then again i i also have an inkling that maybe law enforcement's covering for St. John's University and maybe yeah. there is evidence could that he be. was investigating. And they're just not saying it because it maybe they're involved. I mean, there's just so we've seen yeah. so many crazy possibilities through these cases that anything is possible. So I know I don't so I don't leave anything out of out of the realm because mm-hmm. anything anything could happen. So anything could have happened. But that's where we're gonna wrap up today's episode. I did want to say one thing before we go, though. If you do have any information regarding the disappearance of Joshua Geeman, please, please speak up and contact the Stearns County Sheriff's Department at 320-259-3700. Again, anything, any information or, you know, potential sighting, perhaps, it's always good to just put the tip in and let law enforcement uh, follow up on it. But we'll go ahead and wrap up today's episode there. Thanks for joining us for another episode of our podcast
1: yep we'll be back next week and until then keep on taking your mind and